Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host Sherry and you are listening to From the Dark Side. Today's case is about a man who was on the run for a couple weeks in March of 2000. Senseless murders were committed during this time and it ultimately ended with a family of three being taken hostage. I'm going to break my own rule of no banter just for one moment because I want to get this out of the way because it's important to me. This case took place in Baltimore, which I was living near at the time. My son, Michael, who many of you know, passed away in 2019 at the age of 19. Well, I was in Baltimore City in the hospital giving birth to Michael in March of 2000. It was during the time that Joseph Palzinski was on the run in the area. I was 19 years old back then and went into labor two months early. My little premature baby had to spend two weeks in the NICU in Baltimore City. I remember the nurses and everyone I was in contact with just staring at the TV screen since there was so much coverage going on during this manhunt. It's emotional to talk about since Michael is no longer with us and the events taking place at that time remind me of when he was born and being in the hospital. Anyway, I just thought I'd tell you guys that small bit of info. The Baltimore Sun, which is a local newspaper, did amazing award-winning coverage of this case and where most of my sources came from. This is episode 85, The Case of Joseph Palzinski. This story takes place in the year 2000. The Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl. There was the Florida election recount. Less than 600 votes separated the two candidates, which were Al Gore and George Bush. The Summer Olympics took place in Sydney, Australia. Charles Schultz published his final Peanuts comic strip. Some popular films in 2000 were Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Gladiator, Castaway, and Meet the Parents. Tiger Woods becomes the youngest player to win a Grand Slam in golf. And lastly, 51 million viewers tuned in to watch the season finale of the reality show Survivor, which was huge at the time. Tracy Whitehead is a 20-year-old mom with a 4-year-old son. She had him when she was 16 and felt he would do better being raised by her grandmother since Tracy had some substance abuse issues she needed to work on. She still visited him frequently and stayed involved in his life. Tracy is single and living in Baltimore County. One day she runs into a man while waiting at a store. He approaches her and says that she had dropped something. They gazed at each other, and Tracy said he was incredibly handsome and looked clean-cut and seemed very nice. They exchanged phone numbers, and before long, they were dating and moved in together in a place in Bully's Quarters, Maryland. The man's name was Joseph Palzinski. He is 29 years old, and he usually goes by Joby. That's what his family and friends call him. Joe is a bodybuilder and an electrician, although he doesn't seem to be able to keep a job for very long and was often unemployed. 
Joe spoils Tracy a lot, always buying her gifts and flowers. She was head over heels in love, and he seemed to be the perfect guy who just adored her. She even got clean within a few months of them being together. He often took her and her son out during her visitations with her son, and they would go to parks. This nice feeling didn't last long, however. Joe had gotten her a beautiful necklace, and one day, in a fit of anger, he ripped it off of her. Another day, Tracy is walking out of work, and a male employee was coming out at the same time. They walked down the sidewalk a short ways, discussing normal co-worker type stuff, when she looks up and sees Joe standing there. He was there to pick her up from work and was extremely angered to see her standing next to another man. He begins berating her and screaming that she's cheating on him. Tracy is trying to tell him that they work together and he isn't hearing it. Meanwhile, her co-worker is worried out of his mind. This bodybuilder guy is in front of him threatening to beat the hell out of him. Joe makes Tracy get in the car and tells her, if I ever see something like that again, I'll kill you both. Two years go by with Joe and Tracy living together. The year is 2000 now. Joe is 31 years old, Tracy is 22, and is the main provider financially. Joe continues to be jealous of every little thing that she does. He is abusive and beats her often and calls her worthless. He controls what she can wear, who she can talk to, where she can go. Many of us can sit here and say, well, why didn't she just leave? Well, she's constantly threatened that he will kill her if she does, and he will also kill her family. So she's terrified to leave him. She just walks on eggshells around the house and tries not to upset him. There's no rationalization with this kind of person. She's doing what she has to do to survive in her circumstances. Joseph Palzinski was born November 11th, 1968. His parents seemed typical. They were not abusive or neglectful and gave him a decent childhood. They had an incident in 1983 when Joe was 14. According to an article by the Washington Post, he was on a Perry Hall High School bus and the bus was involved in an accident. The bus was in a parking lot and had rammed another school bus. Joe hit his head pretty hard on the window. Well, six days later, Joe was standing in the kitchen, just as normal as can be. Next thing his parents see, he was laying on the kitchen floor, sprawled out, kicking, screaming, and biting at his parents if they tried to get near him. He was taken out on a gurney and transferred to the hospital where he was diagnosed as having a post-traumatic psychotic episode. His parents say he was never the same after that bus accident. Two months after the bus accident, he sees a neurologist who says he has psychological issues now. His mother sued the Baltimore County school system. The suit was dismissed, but doctors did testify he would have lifelong issues with his behavior. This reminds me a lot of the Johnny Lewis case from a few episodes back. Both men suffered traumatic brain injuries, and it influenced their behavior. Joe's mom was supportive of her son, oftentimes telling his abused girlfriends that he's really a good guy at heart. She helped him with getting cars and paying his bills. Sometimes she even packed his lunch for him and left it in his mailbox. Joe became Jekyll and Hyde. He was known to be very charming at first with picnic dates, horseback riding, gifts and flowers, and then a different side gets revealed. One that is jealous, controlling, and abusive. When he takes his medication, he was a great guy who loved karate and fast cars. When he didn't take it, he was violent and unpredictable. 
We learned that Joe has a lengthy criminal history that involves lots of domestic assaults and aggressive behavior. He had several ex-girlfriends, some whom were still in high school, that reported physical abuse. He had been in and out of mental institutions and prisons and was often on parole and probation. His thing was he liked to control women. He would charm them, then turn abusive. I'm not talking just yelling. He was full on beating his partners and in full control of their lives. According to the Washington Post, when Joe was 19, he was arrested for punching a 16-year-old girlfriend who wouldn't sleep with him. He was given two years probation and required to attend counseling. He missed a lot of his counseling sessions, and when he did attend, he just caused a scene. The judge revoked his probation because of this and sentenced him to four years in jail. He was released after two years due to good behavior. During this time, he was taking Elevil and Prozac, and his symptoms were controlled. He began another relationship with a girl who was still in high school. One day, he threw her against a wall and threatened to shoot her. He was arrested but made bail, and he was ordered not to have any contact with her. But he called her 15 times and threatened her and her family. So he was arrested again. But he was just sent to a mental health facility in Catonsville for an evaluation. And after three days, he escaped and ran into the woods and never returned. Two months later, he was in Ohio with yet another 16-year-old girlfriend. She called police on him to report him for assault, and he ended up holed up in his apartment for 16 hours with a 9mm handgun and a SWAT team outside. Eventually, they released tear gas inside and were able to get him out. Since he violated a gun law, he was charged and extradited back to Maryland. He pled not guilty due to reason of insanity, and then he began a two-year stay at a mental hospital. And in 1994, a psychologist deemed his condition had gotten much better and he was no longer a threat to himself or the public, but he was heavily medicated with antipsychotics. The psychologist wrote in his report, quote, It appears he has fully recovered. Joseph Palzinski is not currently suffering from any mental disease or defect which would render him a substantial risk of bodily injury to another person or serious damage to the property of another if released. The judge released him, and now Joe has to go to court for escaping from the mental health facility. He was sentenced to five years probation. He meets a new woman and they hit it off, but just like he did to all the others, Joe became violent. There was something different about this girlfriend, though, because she was pregnant. One day, he came to her job and saw her smoking a cigarette, and he beat her so bad that she had a miscarriage. For this incident, he was sentenced to 10 years probation. However, this incident violated the probation he was already on, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. Not long after his release, he began dating Tracy Whitehead, the woman from the beginning of the story. So we're back to the year 2000, and Tracy and Joe have been together for two years. They live together in Bully's quarters. Joe has complete control over Tracy. She gets a job at a discount store. Her boss was a woman named Gloria Schenk. Gloria is a wonderful woman who is 50 years old and saw a lot of promise in 22-year-old Tracy. One day, she calls Tracy into her office and says how great of a job she's doing at work. She says she'd like to offer her the position of assistant manager. Tracy happily accepts and is ecstatic now. She's going to have a higher pay rate. She's going to have more responsibilities and hopefully will be working longer hours and away from Joe more. According to Your Worst Nightmare on Investigation Discovery, 
To celebrate, Gloria takes the team out for dinner and drinks. Tracy comes home and is very quietly walking through the house, careful not to wake Joe. But he was up waiting for her. He asked her where she's been. She said Gloria took them out for a bit to celebrate her new position. He is extremely angry and asks if there were any men there. She assures him it was just us women and that's it, except Neil, her co-worker, was there for a little bit and then he left. This enrages Joe, who tells Tracy she's sleeping with him and that's the only reason she got the promotion. Tracy's like, are you crazy? Listen to yourself. He screams that she's nothing but a slut and if she has been cheating on him, he'll kill her. Tracy finally decides she's had enough and cannot continue to live like this. She has a better job now and can save her money up and finally get away from Joe. Tracy was able to secure an apartment, but there was a catch. The apartment wasn't ready yet. It needed new paint and carpet before she could move in. We're talking one to two weeks. But the the apartment is 100% hers. She has to find a way to get her stuff out of the house without him catching her. Gloria, Tracy's boss, knows about Tracy and Joe's relationship. She knows about the abuse and says, you got to get out of that house like today. She asked Tracy where Joe is right now, and she says he's at work. Gloria says, well, take my keys, go get a couple of suitcases of stuff, bring them to my house, and you can stay with us for a week or two until the apartment is ready. She says, don't worry about your shift here at the store. Just go now. Well, the store is literally right up the street from Tracy and Joe's house, so this could be a good plan. When Tracy goes inside, she hears the phone ringing. She's not supposed to be home, so she's not sure if she should answer it. This is a house phone and there's no caller ID. She's in a hurry, but answers the phone. It's Gloria telling her, get out of that house right now. Joe just came into the store and he's looking for you. Tracy could hear Joe yelling in the background and knows he's less than two minutes away. Gloria calls 911 and reports a domestic situation, but Joe shows up to the house before the police get there and tells her she is not leaving him. She's screaming and trying to get away. The police pull up and Joe tells Tracy to shut up and just tell them everything is fine. Joe opens the door a couple inches and tells the officers, everything's okay, we just had an argument. Then Tracy yells, he's going to kill me, help me. Joe is placed under arrest and Tracy gets a restraining order against him. Joe's mother arrives and asks Tracy to please drop the charges. She even offers to pay her way to move to Florida and be done with it all. She says if he has another conviction, he's going to be locked away for years. It's hard for Tracy because she did like his mom. She kind of looked up to her as a role model. But at this point, Tracy's like, yeah, I don't care if he goes back to jail. Screw this guy. Tracy goes to George and Gloria Shank's house, where she will live for a week or two until the apartment is ready to move in. She eats dinner with them and Gloria's son, Nathan, who is 12 years old, and their three-year-old granddaughter. Gloria and George had been together for about 10 years. George didn't have any children, but Gloria has two older sons who were in their 20s and moved out years before. Gloria also had a daughter the same age as Tracy, who died two years prior in a car accident. This daughter has a little girl, who is now three and lives there as well, and there's 12-year-old Nathan. Tracy said George and Gloria were the best people and took good care of her. It's amazing to me just how wonderful this couple is. Something I haven't told you guys is George and Gloria Shank are the mom and stepdad of a friend of ours. 
We haven't seen him in 20 years, but at the time of this story, he was a coworker of my husband's, and we hung out all the time back then with him and his wife. He's a really good guy named Steve, and again, George and Gloria are his mom and stepdad. It's a really small world, I've noticed. Tracy is relieved to be safe. Joe's in jail. She's with this loving family. She's been clean from drugs for a year and a half. She's days away from moving into her own apartment, and all seems right in the world. Just a few days into her stay, it is March 7th, 2000. The family is relaxing watching Walker, Texas Ranger and had just finished eating a chicken dinner when their sliding glass door is opened from the outside. Standing in the living room is Joe Palzinski. He was out of jail and coming for Tracy with a vengeance. Gloria was sitting on the couch talking to her son on the phone discussing carpeting for his basement. Her son heard screams and then the phone hang up. Joe says, come on, Tracy, get up, let's go. Tracy cries out that she's not going with him and tells him to just get out of here. He's not even supposed to be out of jail, but he was released on $7,500 bond. Joe grabs Tracy by the hair and begins dragging her outside. But first he points his gun at Gloria and shoots her twice. Then at George and shoots him three times. Nathan and the three-year-old little girl were spared. As Joe is dragging Tracy outside, a neighbor named David Myers, who is 42 years old, hears the screaming and comes running over to them. He yells, what's going on? Joe points his gun at David and shoots and kills him as well. His fiancée came running out and saw the entire thing. Joe then puts Tracy in the car and they take off. The police and ambulances arrive and take out the bodies of George and Gloria Schenck and also David Myers, the neighbor. 12-year-old Nathan and the little girl go with relatives. It's quickly learned that Joseph Palzinski was the shooter, and a search is conducted looking for him, but he doesn't turn up. We learn that Joe, once he was released the day before, had went to his neighbor's house. She is 48-year-old Constance Waugh. He had asked her to purchase a shotgun and rifle for him, and she did. He told her he wanted them for target shooting, but couldn't buy guns because of his record filled with felonies, so she said, sure, no problem, I'll buy your guns for you. Joe has kidnapped Tracy now and killed three people. He tells her, look, look what you made me do. You're the one who made me kill those three people. It's your fault they're dead. He describes all the ways he's going to torture her, including pulling out her teeth one at a time. Tracy begs him not to kill her, and if he's going to kill her, just let her call her son first to tell him she loves him. He takes her to the woods where they would spend the night on the ground. He makes her have sex with him and even proposes to her with a ring, saying he's sorry about the bad timing. She wakes up in the morning surprised that she's still alive, and he makes her spend the day there with him in the woods. The next evening, Joe needs to steal a car, so he runs out onto Ebenezer Road from a field. He tries to flag down the first car he sees. A man and his wife were on their way to a church service. They see Joe come out of the field and decide they're not stopping for this guy. They've seen the news and they're not about to take a chance. It could be the guy on the run who killed three people. So they speed up. Joe fired two shots and one of them ricocheted and hit 37-year-old Jennifer McDonald, who is pregnant and also has a one-year-old. Thomas McDonald drives his wife to the hospital and came running in saying she had been shot and died shortly afterwards. 
Jennifer is originally from Jamaica. Friends and family say she loved to laugh and could make her coworkers smile by speaking in a British accent. She worked as a secretary for the State Department of Education for the last 13 years. She also enjoyed traveling and had recently learned she and her husband have a baby on the way. While Joe was wildly firing his gun at motorists, a bullet came through a window and hit the face of a two-year-old in the back seat of his mom's car. He survived. His mom saw a man on the road with a gun, and just like the McDonald's, she's not slowing down either. Her son ended up needing a metal plate in his jaw because it was shattered. A bullet fragment remained in his skull, and doctors said it would be too risky to remove. The boy luckily survived and is able to live the rest of his life and hopefully has no memory of that night. I can't imagine as a parent what his mom felt in that moment, though. Joe managed to steal another car. Later that night, Joe takes Tracy to a motel room. He turns on the TV and there's live coverage of the shooting from earlier. Joe realizes his guns are in the trunk of the car and his picture is all over the place. He doesn't like being unarmed. He said, if the cops find out I'm here, I'm going to die by suicide by cop, meaning he's going to fire at them so they will shoot him back. He walks out of the room and into the parking lot to retrieve his guns, telling Tracy stay right next to him and don't try anything stupid. Tracy spots a police car nearby and decides this is her chance to make a break for it since he doesn't have his guns yet. She runs over to the police car and screams her name is Tracy and she has been held captive by her boyfriend for two days. They ask who her boyfriend is and she says Joe Palzinski. He's over there and he's got guns in the trunk. The officer knows this is the man the whole state has been searching for. Joe sees all of this happen and takes off running into the dense woods. Tracy is safe now and taken to a hotel where she will have a safe place to stay while there's a guard there with her 24 hours a day until Joe is captured. The police know his ultimate goal is to get to Tracy, and she was more than happy to be in police custody. She explained everything that happened, and Joe is capable of surviving in the woods alone. Meanwhile, she feels all kinds of emotions. Of course, she's grateful to be alive, but at the same time, she watched him kill multiple people, including two people that were so kind to her and took her in just to keep her safe. Joe steals a car and heads to Virginia. He keeps stealing different cars and then ditching them to keep himself from getting caught. Joe's lawyer attends a live press conference and reads a letter that Tracy had written to him. She's saying whatever she's got to say to get him to turn himself in. It reads, If you really love me, show me by turning yourself in. Please do this for me. I know you have a lot of good in you, so let's bring this to an end. I know you can do it. When Joe reaches Virginia, he broke into a house and stole guns and a van. The van breaks down in Woodford, so he goes up to a random farmhouse and knocks on the door. 54-year-old Louis Terrell answers the door, figuring this guy has just broke down in front of his house. Instead, he sees Joe Palzinski, the most wanted guy in the news right now. He takes Lewis at gunpoint and says, you're going to drive me back to Maryland. Now, for people not familiar with the area, Virginia is right next to Maryland. To get from Lewis's house in Woodford, Virginia to Bully's Quarters, Maryland, which is where Joe wants him to drive him to, it would take approximately two and a half hours with no stops. But they actually drove around for 14 hours, which included multiple stops. Joe makes Lewis stop and buy things for him, such as food and camping gear and a small portable television where he could keep up with where police and the FBI are searching each day. At midnight on March 11th, 
Lewis arrives with Joe near Joe's mother's house in Bully's quarters and dropped him off. Now, many people have mixed feelings about Lewis. The reason being is because instead of hauling ass out of there and calling police, Lewis decides to stay right there in his Dodge Ram truck and he took a six-hour nap. So Lewis explains that he and Joe somewhat formed a bond in the 14 hours he was held captive by him while driving. Lewis is a Jehovah's Witness elder and says his faith is what kept him alive. He said Joe had told him that he had done a lot of bad things lately. He killed multiple people. Lewis explains that he wants Joe to trust him, so he uses his faith to help. He says he told Joe stories from the Bible and gave him lots of Bible verses. He said Joe was red-eyed and paranoid, got on his hand, but was beginning to loosen up some. Lewis tells him men in the Bible did terrible things and God forgave their sins. Joe asked him to give an example and he told him the old story of David and Bathsheba. Joe and Lewis head to Patapsco River to rest for a bit and take a break from being in the truck. Joe carved his mom's name in a rock and told Lewis to make sure he showed this to his mom one day. Lewis told him again, it would be a good idea to turn yourself in. If you have the courage and humility to do it, God will help you. Joe makes Lewis stop in White Marsh to buy supplies. Joe stayed in the truck while Lewis went inside. He told him just be quick. Lewis could have used this as a chance to tell an employee to call the police or slip a note to someone, but he didn't. Instead, he just comes back out to the truck with what Joe asked for. When asked why he didn't say anything to anyone, he said Joe had told him, if anything suspicious happens, I'm going to start shooting innocent people here in this parking lot. He told him not to draw attention to them or people will die. When he finally dropped Joe off, Joe told him, wait until morning and then he can contact the police. Lewis said that Joe spared his life and the lives of many others he had the chance to kill during that time, so he feels like he owes it to him to keep his word. Lewis woke up in the morning and drove to a nearby 7-Eleven and is going in to buy an orange juice. The next thing he knows, police are surrounding him with their guns drawn. He tells them he was getting ready to call 911. The FBI were satisfied with what Lewis told them. They don't believe he was an accomplice or anything like that. He's just a man of his word who told Joe that he wouldn't call police till morning, and he felt he owed it to him for letting him live instead of killing him. So thanks to Lewis not notifying anyone, Joe is now six hours ahead of them, but they'll be closing in soon. Tracy is at the hotel and still in protective custody. Joe is still on the run. Police believe he's moving from place to place in the woods during this time. They know he has a portable TV bought by Lewis Terrell, so they can't put it out there where they are searching or hold no. According to an article by Patricia Meisel, on Friday, March 17th, a woman named Marie Wilkinson, who lives in Chase, Maryland, comes home with her four-year-old son, Dougie, after attending a St. Patrick's Day party at the little boy's school. Her and her husband for the last week had been glued to the TV watching news of Joseph Palzinski, just like a lot of families. They had seen recently that he was spotted in the area near a neighbor's chicken coop, and it really freaked her out. So Doug says he'll come home once a day to check on her. As well, her brother and sister-in-law live across the street and have a deal with one another to call each other multiple times a day to check in until this whole ordeal was over. 
So it's a normal day in March. Marie's husband, Doug, who works as a maintenance technician, was home because she saw his car in the driveway when she came pulling in. It's around 3.50 p.m. He's not supposed to be home yet, so she figured he's just here to check on her. She goes in and hangs up her coat and goes to get little Dougie some juice. Suddenly, she hears her four-year-old say, Mommy, there's that man. Mommy, Joe Palzinski's here. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. (laughs) She sees a strange man in her house pointing a gun at her. She grabs her son and says, please don't shoot us. He tells her to relax. He's not going to kill her. She asks where her husband is, and he says he's in the master bedroom. You two go in there with him. She goes in and sees her husband, Doug, is hogtied to the frame of the bed with cable wires. He tells his wife, I'm so sorry, but I cannot help you. He had come home in the middle of the day to check on her. He walked in, he pet the dog, and he put the mail on the table. While in his house, he had heard a man behind him say, If you move, you're dead. You know who I am, and you know I'll do it. He ordered Doug into the bedroom and waited for Marie to come home. Joe ties her up as well. He asks what the little boy needs in order to be comfortable, and then gets him some pillows and puts him next to his mom. He fell asleep a few minutes later. Joe begins loading his gun and tells them not to worry. He'll be leaving as soon as it gets dark. He says he's just doing what he has to do to get to his girlfriend. He reminded them of others, like Louis Terrell, who he had spared from dying. All he needs is for them to stay calm, and when night comes, he's going to take their van and head out to find his girlfriend, Tracy. These two parents are scared, but know that nighttime is approaching. If they start to show any kind of anxiety, their son will panic, and Joe may freak out. Joe tells them about his life and his stepdad committing suicide, and he was the one who walked in and found him. Each time Joe started to get emotional, Doug would change the subject to something else. Joe watched the news and laughed when he saw people being interviewed saying they were buying guns because of him, saying all he wants is his girlfriend and there's no need for everyone to be so afraid of him. Marie offers to make him some food since he had eaten a bunch of their cookies and ice cream. She asks, well, how about a grilled cheese? He remarked that he hadn't had one of those since he was a child. He frees her to make a sandwich. Marie is worried that her brother, who lives across the street, would be coming over. She says she needs to turn some lights on to make it seem normal. Her brother's wife is her best friend and would likely be calling soon. She's worried that if she doesn't answer the phone, she would walk across the street to check on them. So Joe Joe allows her to call, but he keeps a gun to her head while they're talking. She basically just checks in with them and tells them everything is fine. You guys have a good night. Joe tells Marie and Doug that he heard about the little boy who he had accidentally shot, and he was relieved to learn that the child hadn't died. It's now almost 8 p.m., and Joe says he's ready to leave. He told Marie he's sorry, but he has to tie her up again. He also says he needs to tie little Dougie up. She asks if he can tie him to her, and he agrees. Joe takes their van and backs out of the driveway. They wait until the coast is clear and Marie was able to free herself. She runs across the street to her brother's house and bangs on the door. The call to 911 was placed at 9.05 p.m. And minutes later, they received another 911 call. This time from Lang Street in Dundalk, which is the home of Tracy's mother. 
Lynn Whitehead, who was Tracy's mother, lives in a brick row home that she shares with her boyfriend Andy and their 12-year-old son Bradley. They are at home and it's 9 o'clock p.m. They suddenly hear a loud banging on the front door. They hear someone scream, let me in, I know she's in there. They immediately know this is Joe looking for Tracy. They barricade the front door with a dresser. Joe begins shooting at the deadbolt and bursts through the door. 12-year-old Bradley runs to the phone to call 911. Joe enters carrying multiple guns and over 200 rounds of ammo. He grabs Tracy's mother and Andy ran into the next room. Joe yells for him to come out saying he will just start shooting if he doesn't. The police arrive within minutes and realize they have a hostage situation. They go into the neighbor across the street's house and turn off his electricity. They position themselves with sniper rifles at each window, carefully watching the house across the street. This is a busy street. Like I said, it's brick row homes, so there's lots of neighbors. Some neighbors were just getting home from the grocery store. One was returning from an evening dentist appointment. They were all told to turn back around and leave the area. According to the Baltimore Sun, Joe immediately begins talking to police. He says, this can be easy. Just give me Tracy. I'll give you the three hostages I have here. If she's not here in 25 minutes, they die. They tell him they're not going to bring him Tracy. So he says, okay, we'll get her on the phone so she can listen while I kill her mother. Professional negotiators are brought in. Some talk to Joe for hours at a time. All they want is for Joe to come out with his hands up and not kill the three innocent people inside, including a 12-year-old boy. The next day was Bradley's 12th birthday. Joe shoved a gun in his face and told him he'd kill him as negotiators watched from the window. The boy begged him not to kill him. Joe and the three hostages watched the news together, Joe on the phone pointing out to police which things were incorrect. They said at times Joe was decent to them during this ordeal, but he had these violent mood swings. The police know that all of this stems from mental illness and use the tactics they have in that area to try to talk him into coming out. They brought in the Director of Violence Management at Shepherd Pret Psychiatric Hospital in Baltimore. That's a hell of a title, Director of Violence Management. His name is James McGee. He gets a message on his pager to call ASAP while he was out eating dinner. They tell him, we have Joe Palzinski, but he has hostages. Use your knowledge of people with this kind of mental illness to get him to come out. Meanwhile, days have gone by. Joe has not slept one minute. Eventually, they're going to have to go in with tactical units and tear gas, and it's going to be a shootout, and this is not what they want. They want a peaceful resolution. So James McGee had initially been contacted when the manhunt first began. They wanted his expertise. His findings were, quote, Joseph Palzinski was so obsessed with Tracy, he would return to his old neighborhood even though he was being hunted. So James McGee tells police his advice is do not meet his demands, but still let him think he's calling the shots. Sunday comes, it's been days, and Joe is tired and depressed. They can hear it in his voice. His mania would go away and depression would set in. Then the mania would come back and it was like a cycle. Joe fires a shot and tells police they have a deadline to get Tracy to him or these three are going to die. I'm sure each time he fired these random shots, everyone was worried that it was one of the hostages, but he was just showing them that he has his guns and plenty of ammunition. The police contact Louis Terrell, the man who had given him the long ride, and bring him in to talk to Joe on the phone. 
An FBI hostage negotiator talked to Lewis about how to go about it. He gave him coaching before he got on the phone. Lewis reads to Joe from the Bible and prays for him. He attempted to joke with Joe by saying the police had gathered the trash from their fried chicken meal they shared together and bagged it as evidence. He told Joe to fight the devil in him and don't let it win. Lewis asked Joe if he could please release 12-year-old Bradley. Joe says no. Lewis said Joe seemed different than the last time. He was inattentive, like he wasn't focused on the phone call. He was fading in and out of consciousness. The phone call lasted 20 minutes, and Joe wasn't answering any longer. What is happening in there, and is it possible that Joe is falling asleep? The SWAT team begin approaching the house with ladders, carefully so they are not caught. This has gone on for 97 hours. It has to end. Police are getting ready to enter the house when suddenly at the front window of the first floor, they see Lynn Whitehead climb out and land on the grass. She says, it's me, not Joe. Ten minutes later, her boyfriend, 40-year-old Andy, climbs out and lands on the grass. Lynn explains that they put two Xanax in Joe's iced tea, and now he's fallen asleep. He's got his guns right next to him. But the question on everyone's mind is, where is their 12-year-old son? They said he is asleep on the kitchen floor. They didn't want to wake him up since he would make noise and possibly wake up Joe. Police enter the home. Officers wanted to take him alive. The last thing they want to do is kill Joe Palzinski. They want him to have to pay for his crimes and not get the easy way out. But Joe started to move, so they began firing at him. One officer goes over and lays his body over the boy sleeping on the kitchen floor until the gunfire is over. Joe Palzinski is dead. He was 31 years old, and his rampage of terror was finally over. Joe's autopsy report showed that he had been shot 27 times. According to the report by the medical examiner's office, 23 of the bullets pierced his head and torso. Four bullets cut major arteries. 19 bullets struck non-vital organs. One bullet entered the right side of Joe's face, smashed his jaw, and sliced through an artery in his neck. Other bullets hit him in the chest, striking a rib and a lung and severing an artery. More bullets hit him in the legs and arms, and four bullets grazed him. They say he may have raised his arm and turned to the left while being riddled with bullets. If that's the case, he had woken up and was conscious and aware of what is happening to him. They found no traces of drugs or alcohol in his system except for Xanax, which Lynn said she drugged him with. The report also stated he was 189 pounds, 5 feet 9 inches tall, wore gray sweatpants, white socks, and a t-shirt. He also had hair plugs and had a tick on his knee. He also had a healed gunpowder burn on his hand. Joe's mother wanted to see her son's body before he was cremated. She kissed him and held his hand, and she winced at the damage from the bullets. She said she was only happy that Joe was sleeping while all this happened. Constance Wall, the neighbor who purchased the gun for him, was sentenced to 16 months in prison for her involvement. For the families of the victims, life has been hard, which is expected, and the case quickly faded from the news as the next year, 9-11-2001, happened. Rest in peace to George Schenck, Gloria Schenck, David Myers, and Jennifer McDonnell. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.